Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Surely You Can't Be Serious podcast, and (laughs) happy Halloween. (laughs) Today, we are talking about the top five movies to watch on Halloween from the 70s. From the 70s. This is another top five list because we love them so much. Next episode, we will be talking about the top five movies to watch around Halloween in the 80s. Yes. And so I'm excited. Now, what's interesting about this particular scenario is we were both born in the 70s. Right. So there wasn't a lot of slasher flicks that I was allowed to see between the ages of zero and five. I know. that It's a little bit tricky here. I, and we're going to have some horror people out there that'll be like, how could you possibly leave this movie off your list? Well, we were too little. Yeah. We're- and we haven't really gone back. This is not our best genre. Yeah, so neither one of us are big horror fans. Like, we appreciate them, and we're familiar with them to some degree. But, I mean, there are multiple podcasts devoted exclusively to horror. And if you're into that, you should go listen to those podcasts, because we're not it. But if you're just kind of into horror, and you want to have some fun Halloween movies to talk about, we're the podcast for you. Hey, listen, I want you to go back in time with me, D, to October 31st, 1978. Ooh, okay. How old are you? Like... I would have just turned three. Three, okay. Yeah. Then let's go to 79. <laughs> yeah, because four is a whole lot different <laughs> than three. <laughs> just imagine with me, you're downstairs, uh-huh. and your dad says, come downstairs, we're watching a scary movie. Lights are out, tells you to go manually turn the knob. These are the type of movies we're talking about today. Yeah. Uh, back then, I think that our TV was still black and white. Like, we still had a black and white TV that we would wow. watch. Wow. And I'll tell you this, one of my earliest memories, it didn't even dawn on me until you just said that just now. One of my very earliest memories is of going and watching a double feature in the 70s. Yeah. Remember the 70s version of Dracula that came out? Yes. The guy had his face, like when he was in the sun, it was like peeling off at the end. It was Frank Langella. It was. It was him. The bad guy from Dave. Yes. And so I can remember seeing that as a, yes, younger than five-year-old kid. This was 70s, but it was a double feature with the movie that is going to be one of my picks tonight. And so I'm excited to talk about that. You know, I was a big fan of the Universal movies. So I watched the the old Dracula, the old, you know, Bride of Frankenstein, you know, Creature from the Black Lagoon, that type of stuff. Do you remember that there was like a, a movie about those Universal movies? Like, and it had Dan Aykroyd yeah, yeah. and Gilda Radner and a whole bunch of the Saturday Night Live and John Landis, I think, might was involved in it. I love that. It's called It Came from Hollywood. Yeah, that's right. And so a lot of like I would see those things. I'm like, I want to watch that movie. I want to see the blob. I want to see the creature from the Black Lagoon. I want to see those. But they weren't talking about movies from the 70s at that point. Right. I enjoy creature feature movies. So you may notice there'll be less slashers and more creature feature type of stuff. Yeah. Our criteria does not require that it be a scary movie or a horror movie or a slasher movie. It's just movies you watch around Halloween. That's right. Now, interestingly in that, there are a couple of movies that I eliminated that might be considered good slasher or monster movies of the 70s. I'm not putting Alien on my list, even though it's sci-fi horror, because to me, it's more sci-fi than it is horror. And I'm not putting Jaws on my list, because even though it's a monster chasing them for the entire movie... It's a summer movie. It's a blockbuster. It's Absolutely. a beach movie. I told you it was a July 4th movie. Exactly. That's not a Halloween movie. Yeah. So come with us, dive in, because we're about to tell you our top five movies to watch around Halloween 
the 1970s. That's right. Put your footy pajamas on and remember the floor is lava. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're going to tease this up just like yeah, we so have been in the past. I, I defer to you. You may go first. Okay, guys, before we go on, I just want to tell you about this awesome podcast we found. Can you hear a big difference between Parliament and Funkadelic? Are you able to name the members of Wings who were not Paul and Linda? Are you intimately familiar with every track on side six of The Clash's Sandinista? Then Discographies, the podcast for you. Discography is a music obsessive's dream come true. Our friend Dave Gebro and his guests explore an artist or band's entire recorded output in a futile but valiant attempt to reach the higher truth, often cleverly disguised as a nerdy compendium of star ratings and lists. Some of the show's many amazing guests have included director John Landis, Jim Florentine doing four episodes on Black Sabbath, Lou Barlow rating the zombies, members of Pavement doing a five-parter rating of their own work, and Bob Mayer on The Replacements. He's also been releasing three shows a week for over a year in one of the most active Patreons humanly possible. You are not going to want to miss it. Discography is available wherever podcasts are consumed. Dee, you and I, we definitely recommend you subscribe and listen to this podcast. It's great. Fantastic. Deep dive to its deepest. All right, Dee, this is my number five movie to watch around Halloween from the 70s. Five. George Romero was originally supposed to direct this movie, but Toby Hooper got the job instead. All right, so this was, I'm going to call it a movie. But it was actually released as a television miniseries. Oh, okay. Now then, the author of this movie or story is one of the most prolific, important authors of our time. I mean, you're talking bullseye of bullseye for you and I growing up, okay? Okay, yep. All right. The head bad guy from this TV miniseries yeah. is on screen for less than 90 seconds. Okay. Anything coming to you so uh, far? I, I have an idea. I have an idea. Okay. But keep going. The plot of this movie is very autobiographical. It's about a professor who moves to a New England town and is kind of an outcast and kind of a weirdo and realizes that the giant mansion up at the top of the hill is actually possessed by a vampire. So is this movie have a name that reminds you of Burning Witches at the Stake? Yes, it does. All right. This has got to be Salem's Lot. The vampires are creating vampires. Hey, this thing is moving. Yeah, you know, I walked through the valley of the shadow of death. Bill, Bill! So Salem's Lot was Stephen King's second book that he ever published, and it's his favorite book that he published up into, you know, through the 80s. Yeah. So I've read this one. It's fantastic. Yeah. Bonnie Bedelia from Die Hard is the love interest. Wow, okay. You got a kind of a cool plot twist at the very end involving her. Uh-huh. You get one of the guys from Starsky and Hutch as the uh, main guy in this movie. Okay. And you've got Clint Eastwood's buddy from Any Which Way You Can and Every Which Way You But Loose <laughs> running around town as a vampire. Jeffrey, Jeffrey Lewis. Jeffrey Lewis, yep. Okay, so I haven't seen that one. Like many horror movies, it would catch my eye in the video store. Yeah. And the, the vampire is displayed prominently on the cover, and he looks like the Nosferatu vampire. Yeah, yeah. Which, again, another scary movie from the 70s that was a remake of a really old, like black and white silent movie. That's correct. But I have not seen 
either one of those. Salem's Lot's great. And it was made for television. So if you want to watch it with your kids, definitely creepy, definitely scary, but not gory. You know, no sex, no cussing, that type of thing. Okay. And you can get it from the library, whatever. It's really great. Yeah. They remade it in the 2000s with Rob Lowe as the main character. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Stephen King's Salem's Lot. Okay. So ready for my number five. Ready for your number five. Number five. Okay. Before writing and directing this movie, the director and writer asked Bob Clark about a movie that he had just finished up a couple of years earlier called Black Christmas. Okay. He asked him, hey, did you ever think about doing a sequel to Black Christmas? Black Christmas involved like these sorority killings where it was a serial killer and you never really saw who it was. And Bob Clark said, uh, no, because these aren't really the kind of movies that I came to Hollywood to direct. So the director of this movie says, well, if you did, what would you do? And he's like, oh, I'd have my guy escape from a mental asylum and come and come back and wreak havoc in the same place that he was at before. That's about all he gave him. Now, I've said the name Bob Clark a few times. Do you remember who that is? That is the same guy who directed A Christmas Story. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> who gave us one of the funniest movies of the 80s. Yes, one of his his big movie to come out in the 70s was Black Christmas, which was, of course, a horror movie that yeah. takes place on Christmas. <laughs> and then he comes out with a Christmas movie that takes place on Christmas in the 80s, which is one of the best Christmas movies of all time. I triple dog dare you. So the director of this movie decides that it needs to also be set on a holiday. Okay. And so he gets together with his girlfriend and they start writing a script. They had been propositioned by some producers who had seen his first movie, which was called Assault on Precinct 13. Got it. Let's kick it down the road. Okay. Let's kick it down. I, I, yeah, I was going to say, if, if our listeners have got it, you keep it in your mind because yep. I think it must be higher on Jason's list. It is. It All is. right. By the way, do you mentioned... The John Carpenter movie, Assault on Precinct 13. Yes. The Film by Guys covered that not too long ago. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that was a good episode. Go back and check out that episode. It's one of Carpenter's early movies. You ought to check out. All right, so number, my number four. Four. This was narrated by a popular sitcom actor in the 1980s, and he was paid with a marijuana joint <laughs> for his time and effort. This one, the director wanted a PG rating. Okay. And because of that, he shows very little blood, very little gore, almost no gore. Okay. But instead, it had the opposite effect. Because of the minimalization of what you actually see, your mind races and you go crazy. Instead, it becomes like the most horrific thing you've ever seen in your life. Gosh, okay. okay? I don't know what it is. Okay. Keep going. All right. So, this is an allegory for the Vietnam War. The director got the idea for this movie while he was holiday shopping in a crowded department store. I could see the recognition on your face. Huh? I, I, know, I know where you're going with this one, and, and it is appropriate because it is also my number four. Okay, great. So, yes, he is, he is in a very busy store, and he's thinking to himself, how could I speed through this crowd? He turns and looks to his left, and because it's a hardware store, he sees a chainsaw <laughs> and thinks that'd be a good way to get through this crowd. Hey, that might be a good what a movie. great idea. Yeah. Yeah. Now we've talked about psycho before, which psycho is based on the actual killer, Ed Gein. Yes. Right? Yep. Some aspects of silence of the lambs were based on Ed Gein. Yes. 
they actually really pushed this movie as true, based on a true story. They The movie even starts off with the line, the film you're about to see is true. It really wasn't. It wasn't. No, no not no. at all. Like It has some relationship to the Ed Gein story, which if you want to hear more about that, check out our M versus Psycho versus Lame. Silence of the Lamb. Two of those heavily influenced by Ed Gein's story as well. It also is bears some relationship to a serial killer out of Texas mm. called Elmer Wayne Henley, who would recruit young men to go to this guy who was killing them, go to his house. And uh-huh. so partially based on that, but the movie, if you haven't guessed it yet, after the clue of Chainsaw and in Texas <laughs> is the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. What happened was true. The most bizarre and brutal series of crimes in America. Of course, of course. I found this quote awesome. Edwin O'Neill, who plays the hitchhiker, the guy, one of the guys at the dinner scene, yeah. said, filming the dinner scene was one of the worst experiences of my life, and I had been in Vietnam where people were trying to kill me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah. It is an intense and uncomfortable scene, and all to try to get a PG rating on a movie that you're calling the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. So this movie came out in October of 1974. The budget for the movie was $140,000. It would go on to gross $30 million. I mean, it's a pillar in the horror genre. Yeah. So this stars Marilyn Burns as Sally Hardesty, the one who's the last girl, as they call her. Uh It has Paul Partain as the wheelchair-bound Franklin Hardesty, who had just come off a Sidney Lumet movie, actually, when he got this one. And then you've got a guy named Gunnar Hansen, who you might know better as... Leatherface. Yes. So this movie, as cheap as it was, set the stage for so many horror movies to come. It was the first movie to use power tools as a murder weapon. Yeah. And one of the very first ones to use large masked men as the killer. I watched it just the other day in preparation for this. Yeah. That last, the dinner scene, is torture. All she does is scream for like six minutes and they're point, pointing at her and poking her and trying to get grandpa to bang her in the head with a hammer. And... <laughs> so I was going to tell you also, while they were shooting this, totally miserable, middle of summer in Texas. And we know we live in Southern Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. It's freaking hot. Yeah, it is. Triple digits the entire shoot. Yeah, and the, I mean, talk about it being a cheap budget, like 140000 He was trying to get it done as fast as he could so that he didn't have to keep renting the equipment. <laughs> and so they're not only out there in the heat, they're out there for like the whole day, you know? Wake up, start shooting until you can't stand anymore and then fall asleep. Yeah. The misery you see on everyone's face is real. I did hear that Marilyn Burns, while she was running through the the jungly area of Texas, a lot of those burrs would cut her and she ended up bloody from that. So much of the blood you see on screen is real blood. Yeah. Okay, so that was my number four. Also my number four. Let's hear your number three. All right. Three. My number three has been called the scariest movie of all time. Okay. okay. Why don't we push that one down the road? Let's push that one. Okay. <laughs> yes. Okay. To your number three, sir. 
All right. My number three involves an author's first book and first movie to be made out of his book. He sold the movie rights for $2,500. He was 26 years old, never been asked to have a book made, let alone his first book turned into a movie. And the director had gotten the book on the request of a friend, read it, and was like, this is great. Let's see who's got it. And he said, nobody's got it. So he went to these studios and said, let's buy it. Yeah. Heard crickets for six months. And then finally a bite. You know what it is? I do know what it is. Okay. This has to be Carrie by Stephen King. You got it. Yes. It's the night of the senior prom. The Bates High School gym is alive with excitement. Everybody is there. Even Carrie White. The girl no one likes. Oh, sorry about this incident, Cassie. It's Carrie! And everyone makes fun of her. So Carrie came out just after Halloween, 1976. Came out November 6th, 1976. Now, this is one of the bigger budgets for the movies of the 70s. This one had uh, started off at $1.6 million, got bumped up to $1.8 million. But you have a star-studded cast, including... This is interesting. The wife of the art director who said, you should skip that commercial audition that you're doing tomorrow and go audition for this movie that I'm about to be a part of. The art director's name was Jack Fisk and his wife's name is Sissy Spacek. Whoa. She had totally like, and, and she's in her 20s, Yeah, but she's supposed to play a teenager. So instead of going to this commercial shoot that she's supposed to do, she gets Vaseline and slicks her hair down and then wears this little like sailor outfit that she had from whenever she was a little kid and totally looks like this pubescent teenager. Yes. Wow. Yeah. That's fantastic. You know, it's got Nancy Allen and John Travolta in it. I mean. So Nancy Allen, we know from RoboCop. Yes. Because we talked about RoboCop versus predator predator that was a good episode summer of 87 yeah that's right a good one um she ends up marrying brian de palma they were married from 1979 to 1984 wow it also has william cat mr greatest american hero right in it it also has john travolta in one of his earliest movie roles who comes who becomes the movie guy for the next decade after that yep it's got a lady named pj souls in it who's in another movie that's going to come up we'll here talk in a about bit. her in a minute yeah it's got amy irving in it who is so pretty so pretty and ends up marrying steven spielberg 10 years later who wait who Steven Spielberg. Okay. He's a director. Oh, okay. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, it's just nuts. All the people that were involved in this, but it all started from this novel by Stephen King that he threw away. He literally was writing the novel. His wife had said, you know, you should try something from a female female perspective. He gave it his best shot and he thought, this is terrible. Wadded it up, threw it in the trash. His wife dug it out of the trash, read it and said, you need to keep going. This is good. You know, they really did a great job with this. The the pig blood scene at the very end. You talk about scary. When she flips at the very end of the movie and the door slams shut and she's like, that's it. I've had it. Everybody's going down. It is scary. Even the teacher that was kind of nice to her. Yeah. Sorry. You... Are getting it just like Sorry. everybody else who's inside this building right now. Yep. You know, the scene that stands out to me is the one where they're, they're throwing tampons at her in the shower going, plug it up, plug it up. I watched it. It's just heartbreaking. You know, they just oh, yeah. 
bully her. And then her mother's a wacko. Oh, Piper Laurie. Oh, my gosh. What an incredible job she does as the psycho religious. So scary, yeah. Oh, my goodness. So good. Excellent choice. Excellent choice. That was your number three. Yes, number three. Okay, all right. Oh, by the way, one quick nugget. Yes. They tried to make a musical out of this. <laughs> it was it was supposed to be on Broadway. I think that they did like 16 previews, all of which tanked. They ran it for like five days and they said, no, this just, it's not going to work. Oh, that stinks. <laughs> the big climactic moment where they- Shocker. <laughs> <laughs> dump blood on the, the audience. Real quick, the last scene in the movie, the grave scene, yeah. they film it backwards to give it the kind of- Ghost airy, yeah. ghost teeth kind of thing. That was inspired by the movie Deliver. Interesting. Okay, very good. All right, on to my number two. Two. This is a movie that was inspired by the old Universal movies. Okay. The star of this movie said, I will star in it, Mr. Director, as long as you don't star in it. I know what movie you're talking about, and we should push it off until a little bit later. Let's push it off. Okay. All right. You're number two, sir. Okay, so my number two, you just referred to earlier as your number three, you said it was referred to as the scariest movie of all time. Yes. There are some incredible stories behind this one. I mean, just trying to dip my toe in was hard because there's so much surrounding the making of this movie, let alone the movie itself. Right. But let me just start at the beginning because at least that's a little kind of happier story. You know who Blake Edwards is, right? I love Blake Edwards. Yeah. Mr. Pink Panther. Mr. Pink Panther. And so one of his earliest TV shows that he did was Peter Gunn. Yeah, okay. You'll know the theme if you don't know the... Spy Hunter. Right, exactly. <laughs> exactly, yes. Yeah. So at some point, he decides, I want to bring back the Peter Gunn character in a movie. And so he gets this guy who's helped him write some scripts. Blake Edwards presents it to William Friedkin and says, hey, look at this script and, and tell me what you think. And William Friedkin looks at it and says, I don't think this could be worse if your worst enemy wrote it for you. Whoa, what? Like he was like, I mean, it could not have been more blunt. And 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 we've as we find out later, William Freakin is that guy. I mean, he's the guy who will he will do whatever he's to, gonna tell to you the get truth. a rise. Yeah. Yes. And he will yes, he's he's a nut. <laughs> he wacko willy. And so he just passed away, by the way, like two months ago. Just passed away August seventh. Okay. So anyway, after that little meeting, the scriptwriter who had also helped Blake Edwards write A Shot in the Dark. That's the second in the Inspector Clouseau movies. Yes, right after the Pink Panther, yep. you get A Shot in the Dark. So this screenwriter, whose name is William Peter Blatty, comes up after this meeting and he says, I'm the guy who helped him write that script, and you're right. It was terrible. This is an important meeting. Yeah. Because later that writer is giving up on screenwriting. He decides, I'll give, I'll give novels a try. Uh-huh. And he writes this novel about an event that occurred in 1949. This kid who at the time was just known as Roland Doe or Robbie Mannheim as a pseudonym. Later, they would determine his real name was Ronald Edwin Hunkler. But in 1949, he was believed to have been possessed by the devil and required an exorcism. And so William Peter Blatty then writes the book. It's The Exorcist. You got it. Something beyond comprehension is happening to a little girl on this street, in this house. A man has been sent for as a last resort to try and save her. <laughs> 
So he writes this book, and it doesn't even sell that well to begin with. It's not until he goes on the Dick Cavett show and gets involved in this conversation about whether the devil exists or not. And for some reason, that lights the spark, and literally within the week, he is on the New York Times bestseller list. It's incredible. You know, this movie was so scary, D. The people in the theaters threw up, passed out. The Washington, D.C. police said they were going to arrest any adult who was bringing a child in to see this movie. Yeah. And even now, you and I are both like, man, that's scary, man. Oh, dude. It is terrifying. Like I said, we need to do a full episode on this. Jason Miller, the guy who plays the young priest in the movie, at some point while the movie is being filmed, an actual priest stops him, unaware that they're filming this movie, but just stops him in his apartment building, hands him a Catholic medal, you know, the little necklaces that you can wear, some saint's medal, and says to Jason Miller, if you reveal the devil for the trickster that he is, he will seek retribution against you or... He will even try to stop what you're doing to unmask him. Whoa. So he gets this medal. Two days later, he's walking through his apartment building. He goes by the door and he's like, whoa, what did I just see? Leans back and there is a coffin inside of the apartment. The priest that gave him the medal two days earlier is dead in the casket. And that's just one of three or four deaths associated with the making of this movie. It's crazy. Hey, I'll tell you something else. I don't know if you came across this or not. Yeah. On screen in this movie is a killer, like a an actual serial killer. The guy who plays the radiologist yes. when she's in the hospital yes. later gets convicted of murder. Yes. Two of the actors in the movie die before the movie is released. Both the main female characters in the movie break their back during the production of the movie. The The behavior of William Friedkin during this entire movie is nuts. And had he not just come off winning the Academy Award for the French Connection, no one would have let him even do the movie, let alone do the crazy stuff that he was doing in the movie. That's <laughs> incredible, man. Oh my gosh, this one is just amazing. But if I can just... Give you a little trivia on the guy who wrote the music because the music is iconic oh, as well. It, it's as, at least as important as some of the special effects. The composer's name is Jack Nietzsche, and he started his career as the right-hand man of Mr. Phil Spector himself. Whoa! He played with the Rolling Stones. He played with Neil Young. He wrote the song, which won him an Oscar, by the way, Up Where We Belong. Lord, lift us up where we belong. <laughs> Mr. Joe Cocker himself, wow. ladies and gentlemen. Is that that same man is the guy who wrote the music to this incredibly scary movie. A little bit of trivia for you. Go. You know who the woman is who sings that song, Up Where We Belong? She's been featured in one of our other episodes. Was it the Dirty Dancing episode? That's right. Jennifer Warren's. Who also sang with the Righteous Brother. Bill Medley. Bill Medley. Thank you for the... I had the time of my life. Time of my life. (laughs) Wow. By the way, a couple more trivia bits. Yes. For the part of the little girl. That ultimately went to Linda Blair. Yes. Jamie Lee Curtis wanted to play the part, but her mother, Janet Lee, wouldn't allow her to do it. Wow. Another person who was a prime consideration for playing this part played Violet Beauregard in Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Miss Denise Nickerson, who, I mean, can you imagine... Violet, you're turning violet. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I can't uh, repeat anything uh, that <laughs> can't repeat anything that Linda Blair says in the movie. But yes, you know the demon was voiced by a woman named Mercedes McCambridge, mm-hmm. who Orson Welles called the world's greatest living radio actress at one point. Oh wow! 
Yeah. Now she smoked 40 packs a day and, <laughs> and you know, since the radio days, her voice changed a little bit. Right. right. Perfect for the demon. Perfect. Yep. Okay. So at this point in the podcast, we are to our number one picks, which are different number one picks. Right. And both of us had it as a movie in our, you know, I had yours as a movie in my past list on my number five and you had my number one is your number two, but we're not going to get into any of that yet. First, we're going to tell you about our honorable mentions. And I will just tell you, boys and girls, ladies and gentlemen, as a kid who was zero to four years old during the 70s, these are not movies that I've seen because I just didn't see that many scary movies, that many Halloween movies. I had a guy the other night when I mentioned this, he goes, oh, Charlie Brown, the Great Pumpkin. I'm like, oh, perfect. I'm like, oh, no, it's 60s, 66. Oh, yeah. So that would have been a perfect one because that's the kind of Halloween movies I was watching at sure, the time. Sure, sure, yeah. But as I went through these things, there were a few movies that I was like, oh, man, I really, at this stage in my life, I do actually want to watch those movies. Even though I'm not a scary movie guy, I would like to watch those movies. So my two honorable mentions, I'm not going to give you any trivia on. I'm just going to tell you. You're not uh, going to tease me up? Come on, what are we doing I here? I don't have the tri oh, okay. trivia. Sorry, Sorry bro. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so one of my honorable mentions is another Brian De Palma movie, and it stars... A guy that we've talked about before when we did our Smokey and the Bandit episode. What? A guy who wrote Rainbow Connection for the Muppet movie. Yeah, Lil Enos. Lil Enos, Because yes. <laughs> he's thirsty, dummy. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Paul Williams is the star of a Brian De Palma movie, which was described to us as a cross between Phantom of the Opera and the Rocky Horror Picture Show, a movie called Phantom of the Paradise. Whoa. I've never seen this movie. I haven't. I had, again, was familiar with the cover of the, the VHS tape or whatever, but it's not one I ever saw. But it's, I mean, it's got a 7.3 on the IMDb. It looks like a worthy watch. I just have never seen it. And based on Jeff Johnson's recommendation, I think I need to probably correct that this month. Anybody who writes a song as good as Rainbow Connection, this has to be good. Yeah. Okay, Jason, before we keep going, there is a podcast that you and I just discovered, which is fan-frickin-tastic that I wanted to tell everybody about. Yeah, it's called Famous and Gravy. Yeah, a couple of guys, very much like ourselves, same generation. They have that kind of same talking back and forth chemistry. Michael Osborne and Amit Kapoor, they have this really awesome format, and it just it keeps you engaged in the podcast the whole freaking time. Yeah, so they talk about a person who is dead and whether or not you would want to have their life. It's yeah. kind of a cool thing. They're they're inspirational. They're very positive, thought-provoking. I, I enjoy this stuff. They break it up into like 10 or 11 different categories. First one is the obituary of this person. Right. And then the last one is the James Vanderbeek category of, I don't want your life. <laughs> and it's fantastic. And they've got a Malkovich category in there, which is my absolute favorite. But you guys should totally go check these guys out. They cover athletes. They cover rock stars. Yeah. Just, I mean, anybody and everybody. I mean, they've covered Eddie Money, Luke Perry. I even forgot he died. Fred Willer, Gene Wilder, Bill Paxton, Hank Aaron, Alan Rickman. You told me you found a Bill Paxton nugget in one of their podcasts. From like, them. According to their podcast, I learned this stuff. Yeah. Bill Paxton. Do you know the song Fish Heads? Fish heads, fish heads, roly poly fish heads. Yeah. Bill Paxton was the director of that music video. Shut up. Yes. Dude, I love these guys. They yeah. are fantastic. Guys, if you have not checked out the Famous and Gravy podcast, definitely go check that out. Definitely. 
And then my other honorable mention is a movie that I want to see. So it also stars Martin Sheen, and it has got a, the plot of the movie is a 13-year-old girl who lives with her absentee father, befriends a disabled teenage amateur magician, and eventually invites him gradually into her tenuous struggle against a predatory local neighbor. This movie is called The Little Girl Who Lives Down the Lane. came out in 1976 and got a 7.0 on IMDb. Okay. Got to be a good movie. Yeah. Jodie Foster? Are you kidding? Yeah. Awesome. Okay. All right. I got a couple for you. These are my honorable mentions, and I have seen these. Okay. okay? And yeah. I've, got a, I've got a kind of a tender spot in my heart for these corny, really cheesy 70s type of movies. Okay? Yeah. I'm going to tease this one up for you a little bit just to see if there's anything there for you. Okay. okay? So this one is basically a copy of the movie Arachnophobia. It stars William Shatner. I was going to say, it can't be a copy because Arachnophobia didn't come out until like the 90s. Well... <laughs> excuse me arachnophobia basically steals the entire plot from this movie excuse me okay yes. yeah gotcha okay yeah. it's a spider so, movie it's a spider movie okay william shatner is the uh protagonist uh-huh yeah i don't know what this is okay it's basically about this arizona town that's invaded by tarantulas for no reason like they don't talk about it why just they're migrating that's it oh uh, that's great okay yeah, i love it not only are they tarantulas but they're tarantulas who spin webs which is you know not possible. I, I don't think that's the way it works. But okay. here's the deal. Producers for this movie offered $10 for each live tarantula that the handlers captured. So they came back with 5,000 tarantulas. Wow. That's $50,000. That's a lot of freaking tarantulas. Here's the thing. Tarantulas, they're spiders. But they're also cannibalistic and territorial. So you have 5,000 tarantulas. You can't just toss them all in a bucket. <laughs> so they ended up with like... Fifteen hundred, or <laughs> and they're really fat. Hey, you watch the movie, man. There are tarantulas everywhere. This movie is called Kingdom of the Spiders. I don't like spiders touching me. Uh, I would not enjoy that movie. I'm I'm with Robert Smith on this one. No, sir, you will not be putting that spider on me. Thank you very much. Hey, the funny thing is, is that they are like these actors are covered with spiders the entire time, uh -huh. and <laughs> Shatner is flicking these things off of stuff. <laughs> And they say the worst injury that anybody suffered was there was minor irritation due to their uh, hairs, the tarantula hairs that are, you know, bugging them. So more than a minor irritation. Kingdom me. of the Spiders, nineteen seventy-seven. Wow, starring okay. William the freaking Shat. Shatner. <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. My okay. other honorable mention. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna tease this one up for you a little bit. Okay. Okay. This whole movie was shot with one camera. Nineteen seventy-two. You have. Bernie Casey, who played Felix Leiter in Never Say Never Again. He was also the, the head guy of the black fraternity in Revenge of the Nerds. He's been in a bunch of other stuff. Scott Glenn, who played the main FBI guy in Silence of the Lambs. He's in it. Okay. Then you have this young actress named Jennifer Salt, who's smoking hot for 1972, running around this whole time. Okay. Here's the thing that really struck me when I watched this again yesterday for the first time since 1990. Okay. okay. The end of this movie is very similar to Aliens from 1986. This is what I mean, okay? There are eggs where these gargoyles are hatching from. What's laying these eggs? We're not really sure. So the good guys go in there, they pour gasoline over them, and they're burning out these eggs. I'm like, this looks just like Aliens. Yeah. This movie is called... Gargoyles. Gargoyles. This was a CBS TV movie. Look at you with two different CBS, or two different hey, made-for-TV movies on your list. I go with what I saw. 
Right? That's fantastic. And Bernie Casey, is, by the way, is the head gargoyle. There you go. All right. Okay. Now we're going to talk about your number one, and then we're going to talk about my number one. One. Okay. And since we both know what they are at this point, because they've come up previously on our list, yes, we'll tease it up for the audience a little bit. All right. Sounds good. All right. All right. All right. All right. Here you go. You ready for? You ready for this? Okay. Ready. Ready. So now, one of the key characters in this movie, his name was also the name of a character in the movie Psycho. It would later on be the name of a character in Scream Five, but for now, let's just stick with Psycho. Okay. And the star of the movie Psycho, her daughter is in this movie. Yeah. As the main last girl. She is, no doubt. And it's her first movie because her mom wouldn't let her audition for The Exorcist. (laughs) (laughs) I know what this is. Of course you do. This is Halloween. 15 years ago, I met this six-year-old child with this blank, pale, emotionless face. The blackest eyes, the devil's eyes. I'm babysitting the Doyles. The Wallaces leave at seven. What about the boogeyman? The boogeyman is coming. (laughs) There's no such thing. How can we have best movies of the 70s to watch over Halloween if we don't actually mention the movie Halloween? How can this not be your number one? When you talk about movies on Halloween from the 70s, you got to start with Halloween, don't you? No, I don't. Because we'll my number that. one is yeah. your number two, so don't give me any crap, okay, sir. All right, all right, sounds good. Sounds good. <laughs> so for those of you who don't know, this is common knowledge, but the mask worn by Michael Myers is actually... William the Shat Shatner. Hey, the main star of Kingdom of the Spiders. Turned it inside out, painted it white. Stretched it out, cut the eyes out. That's all very well known at this point, right? Yep. Okay, Here, here's some tidbits about this movie that you... That you may not know. Okay. All right. Yep. We mentioned that PJ Souls, Pamela Souls, was also in Carrie. She is in this movie as well. She's one of the babysitters. Mm-hmm. This movie was heavily influenced by the movie Psycho. The writer, who is also the director, mm-hmm. and his girlfriend, who is also a writer, who is also a babysitter, named the sheriff Lee in this movie yeah, as a obvious direct connection. Okay. And I mentioned earlier that John Carpenter, the director of this movie had talked to Bob Clark about doing a sequel to black Christmas. Yes. Escape from the mental institution was Bob Clark's suggestion on if he did it, this is what he would do. But Bob Clark has said that is, that's John's movie. That's not my movie. Right. We just had a conversation. Right. 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 So John Carpenter and his girlfriend, Deborah Hill wrote the script for this in three weeks. They knew that they were going to, Make the movie because after he had his film shown at a festival, the movie Assault on Precinct 13, two producers approached him that worked together, a guy named Erwin Yablums and then Mustafa Akkad. So tragically, Mustafa Akkad, he gets killed back in 2005 during the... Remember the three hotel bombings that they did, the Al-Qaeda did in 2005? They called them the Imam bombings. Yeah. There were three hotels. They hit them all at the same time. He was in one of those hotels with his daughter and was killed in that attack. Oh, my gosh. But 30 years earlier, he had funded this movie, which funding for the movie was about $300,000 to $325,000. This movie went on to make $70 million, which is the 
largest profit comparison mm-hmm. that any movie had until Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles came out 20 years later. Really? Yeah. Wow. Okay. Sorry. Here's what I know about this movie. Yeah. It was set in Illinois, but it was filmed in Pasadena, California. The Myers house was an abandoned house. It was set to be kind of destroyed or whatever. And they were like, no, 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 we'll, we'll film it there. They fixed it up later, like 20 years later, they're going to demolish it. They had actually moved it off the property set to be destroyed. And an investor came in, rescued it. And now you can go visit the house. Now it's not on the same piece of land that it, you know, the movie was shot in, but you can actually go visit the Myers house. Wow. You know, if you want to do that, I don't know why anyone would, but I love that. Time I know. I was going to say you would, you would probably go to do it, but what a great opening scene, by the way, the kid looking through the holes of his mask and his sister getting her makeup on. And yeah, the POV of Michael. Yeah. You know, as a little six year old psychopath, John Carpenter said when he was filming this, he wanted the audience to not relate to Michael at all in any way. By the way, the character that I mentioned before, is Sam Loomis. You got Dr. Sam Loomis played by Donald Pleasance in Halloween. There, the, the boyfriend character from Psycho, his character's name was uh, Sam Lewis as well. I think the actor's name was John Garvin, if I'm remembering right. And he is Janet Lee's boyfriend. Mm-hmm. I remember when we talked about Psycho, I think it was kind of very risque for her to be shown in a bra and yeah, all and that with stuff. with the shirt off. Like, that was very, very risky for 1960. Clearly, they were yeah. having a nooner. Uh-huh. And that was a big deal. Yep. So, this movie came out October 25th, 1978. It is 45 years old this year. I think it's about time to go watch it again. Okay. We're on to your number one, sir, which happens to be my number two. By the way, The Exorcist was the first horror movie ever nominated for Best Picture for an Oscar. Okay. So, for my number one... Yes. There was a guy named Kenneth Strickfadden, and he was known as the electrical special effects guy in Hollywood from his first movie in 1931 until his last movie in 1974. Wow. Both of which share a significant history. I know, right? He was the electrical guy for The Wizard of Oz. He was the electrical special effects guy for The Mask of Fu Manchu. He was the electrical special effects guy for The Munsters on TV. Wow. But his first job was the effects of 1931's Frankenstein. And his last job was on my number one movie for 1970s movies to watch at Halloween. Yes. Young Frankenstein with Mr. Gene Wilder by Mr. Mel Brooks. It's coming from the deep, dark recesses of the mind of Mel Brooks. I love him. Young Frankenstein. Life, you hear me? Give my creation life. Sky means business. Starring Gene Wilder as Dr. Frankenstein. That's Frankenstein. Peter Boyle as the monster. <laughs> Marty Feldman as Igor. My grandfather used to work for your grandfather. I'm sure we'll get along splendidly. This movie is not only a great movie to watch at Halloween, it's also one of the funniest movies of the 1970s. Absolutely hysterical. 
Uh, so Gene Wilder is filming Blazing Saddles with Mel Brooks, right? Right. He, right. And they're having tea one day, and Gene Wilder says, "I think there needs to be another Frankenstein movie." And Mel Brooks is like, "Oh my gosh, no! Well, we've got we had the son of Frankenstein, and we had the cousin of Frankenstein, and it lists right. off all of these movies." And Gene Wilder's like, "Okay." But imagine it's his grandson, and he wants nothing to do with the family because they're all a bunch of wackos. Uh-huh. And Mel Brooks goes, now that's funny. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I watched the bloopers on this because I had read, like, Cloris Leachman and Terry Garr and Mel Brooks had said Gene Wilder could not keep it together while he was doing this movie, <laughs> it's right? It's funny, yes. It's so funny. And so the, even they would, they would do stuff like Marty Feldman is, like, chewing on... Madeline Kahn's, you know, <laughs> being for whatever. Yes. Yeah. And he said he just could not stop laughing. Yeah. And so I'm like, well, there's got to be some great bloopers out there. Yeah. I laughed and laughed and laughed. And they would get mad at him. They're like, Gene, that was such a great take. He's like, I, sorry, I can't <laughs> stop. Follow me, please. <laughs> oh, does that include the key to the laboratory? You mean the laboratory. <laughs> Oh, Gene, don't laugh. It's so much better. Now listen to me very carefully. <laughs> so Set a give. <laughs> <laughs> but the interesting thing, so so while they're making this, he's laughing his butt off. He can't keep a straight face. It's very hard. They show the raw cut that's like two hours and 45 minutes, something like that, and it bombs. Oh, yeah. It absolutely bombs. And so they went back to the drawing board. They're like, man, I thought we had a really good one. This the audience is not laughing. It's not funny. So they cut it all down. They trimmed it all up and they ramped the, the pace and the comedy. And of course, it's now. It's a classic. Absolute classic. And I think we've mentioned this a few times now, the inspiration for one of the greatest rockets of the 1970s. How about as that? Well. Walk this way. Walk this way. This way. <laughs> By the way, Marty Feldman. Yeah, it was his idea to switch which side the hump was on from time to time. <laughs> it's a violent Gene Wilder to kind of improv the bits. Like, uh, so wasn't funny. that? Wasn't your hump on the other side? <laughs> what hump? <laughs> <laughs> hey, we still quote this today, right? I there's when you're having a bad day, and I'm like, hey, could be worse. Could be raining. Yeah. You know? My mother-in-law has a dog named Abby. Every time I see that dog, I'm like, Abby normal? <laughs> we just did a Patreon episode on the taco song, Putting on the Ritz. Yeah. Which is featured prominently in this movie. If you're blue and you don't know where to go to, why don't you go where fashion sits? That was the one scene that Mel Brooks and Gene Wilder got in a fight about because Mel Brooks said, this is too ridiculous. Mel Brooks wow. said, this is too ridiculous. It's not going to work. Gene Wilder stuck to his guns. And obviously, I mean, comedy gold. Comedy gold. Comedy gold. Have you heard about that fight? So they had this knockdown, drag out fight and they're good friends. Mm. Like screaming match. As soon as Mel Brooks leaves, he calls Gene Wilder and he says, who was that madman? <laughs> Sorry, and just like apologizes profusely. That's awesome. So that is awesome. Yeah. So like we've done vampire movies, we've done werewolf movies. Yeah. 
We have got to do a Frankenstein episode. <sighs> I'd love to cover this one. Well, this is a great, I mean, I have suggested it. I don't know if this is the right matchup, but I mentioned Kenneth Strickfadden being the electrical guy. Yeah. They used the same lab equipment in Young Frankenstein that they did in the original 1931 version. That would be a fun matchup. Oh my gosh. Hey, I'll tell you this too. Gene Hackman and Gene Wilder <sighs> yeah. were tennis buddies. Uh-huh. And, you know, what are you up to? What are you up to? And he's like, well, I'm working with Mel Brooks on this comedy on Young Frankenstein. Gene Hackman's like, hey, I would love to try comedy. And basically he worked for free and he plays the blind man. And that scene is hysterical. Absolutely. Love it. And connection again, French connection. That was William Friedkin's. They wouldn't even take him as the director until he won the Oscar. And they're like, okay, well, I guess we'll go ahead and take him. Because <laughs> Blatty was, he was firm. This guy has to be our director. Wow. All from that meeting that they had where he knew, where he was honest and said, your script couldn't have been worse if your worst enemy wrote it. <laughs> Okay, well, that's going to do it for our movies to watch around Halloween in the 70s. Come back next week when we talk about movies to watch around Halloween in the 80s. Guys, thank you much so much for tuning in. We hope you all have a happy Halloween season. Be safe out there, and we'll see you next week. <laughs> <laughs>